and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Ted Asani. Now, Ted was the basis of the power pop group Material Issue. The band formed in the mid-80s and had a decade-long run, unfortunately ending with the tragic suicide of their lead singer Jim Ellison. The band had amazing songs like What Girls Want, Diane, Valerie Loves Me, and many, many more. They're back in the spotlight now thanks to the new documentary, Out of Time, The Material Issue Story. Ted discusses why it was time for the documentary. And I asked Ted if the documentary was some sort of therapy for him dealing with Jim's passing. In 2011, to commemorate the uh, 20th anniversary of their amazing album, International Pop Overthrow, the two surviving members, Ted and drummer Mike Zelenko, they reformed the band and they called it Material Reissue. They got a local singer from Chicago and they still uh, perform from time to time. And I mentioned at the start of this, uh, the term power pop, and we discussed where that came from and if Ted is okay with that term. I really enjoyed my interview with Ted. This band is amazing and I hope you enjoy my conversation. So Ted, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. Yeah. So I, the documentary about the band Out of Time, the material issue story, uh, is out now. It's getting rave reviews. Um, what made you guys finally decide to tell the story? And um, how'd you decide on like particular like director to you know to share the story? Actually, it worked in reverse. The director who is a bright young man named Balin Schneider, contacted us. And from what I understand, he was working on doing a short film documentary about the band because I think his father might have been a fan of the band and introduced him to bands from that from the era. Right. And so it was his idea to do a short documentary. And he reached out to Mike and I separately Um a couple of years ago and said, you know, Hey, I'm working on this film project for school. And would you guys be willing to talk to me? And, um, you know, both of us individually just kind of said like, yeah, sure. You know, whatever, would be happy to help out, you know? Right. And so then he said, uh, next time he spoke to us, maybe a few days or weeks later, he said, I'm planning on, uh, you know, taking a trip to the Chicago area with a couple of friends of mine. He might've referred to them as his crew. Um, and, uh, would you mind if we set up and and record, you know, film an interview with you? And I said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And he said, you know, do you know of any place cool that we could set up? So I referred uh, a friend of my son's has a uh, recording studio and uh, rehearsal space in the Chicago area. I said, why don't you reach out to him, see if it'll work out. He'll probably charge you next to nothing to rent some time and set up in the studio. And he did. And we went and that's how I did my interview. And then I think Mike met with him once or twice also and did, uh, you know, an interview also. And, then he reached out and started getting a hold of um, different people in the film. Um, our record producers for our albums and people that had worked with, with the bands and other musicians from the Chicago area. And I think it kind of snowballed and what initially would have been maybe a five or 10 minute film turned into this full feature that he uh, assembled. And that's part of the reason why it seems to be taking quite a long time is because it turned into a pretty big pop project for him. And, um, you know, we're, we're definitely pleased with what we've seen so far and 
you know, we've been to the, a couple of the premieres, uh, one in Minneapolis, one in Los Angeles, one in Chicago, actually two in Chicago. So, um, and he's still putting it in other cities, premiering it in other cities around the United States right now. And uh, when the band is available, we try to get there so that we can do Q and A's, meet and greets. Uh, and if I had my way, we'd be performing at those also, because right. one of the shows here in Chicago, the band played, actually he uh, showed the film first, and then we came out on stage and performed for an hour afterwards, and that worked out really good. So I like to do more of those. Sorry, I ran away with that. I, I have a tendency to speak a lot. No, that's perfect. That's perfect answer. Yeah, <laughs> feel free to edit whatever you want. Oh no, it's, it's it's totally great. It's totally great. Now, um, after watching, I'm sure like you watch, you know, bits and pieces of it. When sorry, my dog just jumped in the room here. <laughs> um, when you had bits and pieces, like I'm sure you watched like some of it before it like was you know released but when you saw the finished product for the first time like what was your initial reaction um yeah he did a really great job i mean he does a great job of building up tension and release so like the first half of the film you know shows the he kind of makes it seem as though it was a meteoric rise of the fame of the band, how we started out as just young guys in college, uh, playing small gigs and at parties and bars here in the Chicago area for and with our friends. And then he did a really great job of showing how we started to expand our fan base. And then once we got signed, we hit the road and started touring. And he took some of our own um, home footage that we had, you know, yeah. we had a uh, video uh what do you call it? vhs cassette recorders with us some of the time when we were touring and you know we furnished some of those uh, cassettes to him to use so he has this really great behind the scenes on the tour bus backstage all kinds of cool stuff that he was able to integrate into the film so you know that was really great and then all of a sudden it shows how you know we experienced our success and then how it started to turn and take a toll on Jim's psyche, Jim Ellison, our singer, right. guitar player, songwriter. Yeah. And then how that started to affect him. And then, I don't know if you or your fans know the story, but then eventually Jim Ellison um, committed suicide right. uh, because of depression, essentially. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden, this, this anxiety that's built with the success of the band turns and it gets really heavy and emotional. And he's got all these interviews with Jim's family, Jim's mother, Jim's father, Jim's sister, and just how, how emotionally wrecked they were with what came from, from Jim's suicide. And also with the band and the fans and people that knew him and worked with him, with him and the band and how it affected us all. And um, so, it, you know, it, it's poignant and it's it's uh, it's tragic, but it's a great story. And Balin did a really great job of piecing it all together. Right. I mean, I don't want to go obviously too deep, you know, deep into you know, you know, Jim's situation, but um, everyone can watch the documentary for that. But did the documentary kind of like was that much needed therapy for you and Mike? In a way, yeah. I mean, you know, now that you bring it up in hindsight, yeah, in a way, it really is. And and the and the premieres that I've been to, I want to sit and watch the film. I like right. watching the film, but maybe that's part of the reason why is it's therapeutic for me to relive everything and to kind of, you know, I don't know about Mike, but 
Mike, the drummer, Mike Zelenko. Yeah. But I've never really sought help. I've never really sought assistance in dealing with what happened and my feelings right. about what happened. And maybe this is just a, you know, a simple way for me to deal with it is, is to kind of experience it through this film. And I think it helps a lot of our fans too. Right. From what I understand. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm sure it does. I can't wait to, you know, to see it. I saw a couple of trailers and Jim's mom cracked me up in like the line about, uh, about Jim loving Valerie, but we didn't. So that was, that was kind of funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd always heard little bits and pieces of the story about who Valerie was and how Jim knew this Valerie, but I never really heard Mrs. Ellison's uh, assessment of how she felt about Valerie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because <laughs> like the obviously the first three songs of, of IPO are all three, you know, based on three you know female names. Valerie loves me. Diane, you know, her name remains the same. So was that all people that Jim knew? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I can't remember the exact stories, but like one of them was like the sister of one of his best friends. That might have been Renee. And right. then the other one was like one of his other friends, wives or something. And that might have been Diane. I can't remember exactly which was which. Yeah. I guess if I, if I really examine the lyrics, I might be able to decipher which was which. But right. yeah, <laughs> he wrote about, for the most part, he wrote about girls that he knew. And I think in a Few, many cases, a few of the cases, he even used their names. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I think there was a Renee, and I, I don't want to say her last name, but I think we even right. know her last name. So I usually like to tell, like, or remembering how I discovered you guys. And uh, I was working up my college uh, radio station up in Buffalo, New York. I was doing the uh, sports cast. 
Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the updates, every time I would come in for an update, the one particular DJ would always let me uh, pick a song to close his show and then lead into my, you know, sportscast. So one time I'm like, I got to pick a material issue song. So I, I picked what girls want. And he's like, okay, you know, great. 
you could do it again the next show because they got a good reaction mm-hmm. i'm like okay sure so then i'm like all right i gotta pick something different i think obviously from the same album album uh destination universe but i picked next big thing and i absolutely mm-hmm. love that song and it's a very the laws everyone knows like there she goes vibe i think in the beginning yes. of the opening so were you guys influenced by the laws First of all, that song, Next Big Thing, I think I'm quoted as saying, has pretty much always been my favorite material issue song. Okay. Cool. Um, it, it's uh, it's one of the easiest to play. It's one of the types of songs, I don't know if you're a musician, but you might have heard musicians say that certain songs just seem to flow, right. where they almost play themselves. You're, you're holding the instrument and singing the words or singing the parts, but you could probably be doing it in your sleep. That's how easily it flows sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing about next big thing. Now about the laws, yes, uh, maybe you could do some research or Google it or something. But I think they both came out at the same time, and I can't. Maybe the laws one came out first, and Jim did have kind of a habit of hearing something and then kind of turning that into an idea okay. that he would use in his songwriting. So it's possible that he was directly influenced by the laws. But I, frankly, I kind of think that they both came out 
so close together that it was more like a coincidence. Like, oh my God, this song sounds just like our song. Or, oh my God, our song sounds just, you know, their song sounds just like our, whatever. And uh, yes, we did like the Laws, uh, that single especially. I think we had the album, I had the CD that that uh, single was on. Uh, when we toured in Europe, we um, a tour manager that we were working with um, had just done some tours with them, and he had some stories about the laws, kind of interesting things, which I won't repeat. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we crossed paths not directly, but you know, indirectly with the right. laws. And uh, yeah, that single was was brilliant. We we loved it. Yeah. yeah, it was right up our alley. I mean, even janglier than we were. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so glad you said like, "What well, girls want your favorite?" Because that's 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 my. I'm sorry. Uh, Next big thing. That's like Next my favorite. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that's my favorite uh, song. Renee Remains the Same is another one like that too. Renee like plays yeah. itself, and when Jim wrote that song and showed it to us, we didn't even have to work on it. We just sat down and it came out. You know, and a lot of Jim's songs were like that. They were just so naturally perfect that they wrote themselves. Not that I'm trying to detract any any of his credit, but like. I think he was just such a great songwriter that he didn't really, it wasn't work for him. He'd sit on his couch with a, an acoustic guitar on his lap and a can of Coke and a pack of Marlboro cigarettes. And he could write <laughs> songs like as easily as breathing. Right. And you know, a lot of times he'd be like, all right, I'm going to show you, and this is his voice. I'm going to show you this new song I got, Ted. It's a, it's a, it's going to be a smash hit. And I'd be like, well, what about the one from yesterday? That That's a hit too, but this one's even better. <laughs> he was like that. <laughs> I mean, he was just so prolific with his songwriting and right. so confident and, you know, not every song was a smash hit, obviously, but a good percentage of them were, that's for sure. Yeah. So how did you two meet? Uh, Jim and I met at Columbia College here in Chicago. Uh, Jim might have started a semester or two before me. And uh, there was like a student lounge in the basement of the, you know, one of the school buildings downtown Chicago. And um, he would see, you know what, we both had leather biker jackets. Hmm. And um, you know how it is like in the scene when you're young and you're hanging out and trying to impress the chicks and stuff. And you're like, Hey, there's that other guy with that cool jacket that, you know, and you kind of wonder, like, I wonder if I look as cool in my jacket as he does, his, you know? And, uh, and I think, uh, he approached me. I think he knew I was a bass player in, in a band and I knew he was a guitar player and a singer in a band. And at one point he approached me and said, you know, Hey, I'm looking to, uh, you know, start a band. He kind of had material issue going with a couple other guys, but he said, I need a bass player. Uh, would you be willing to play? And I said, Oh yeah, certainly. I said, you know, do you write your own music or are you doing covers? He's like, I got, I got tons of songs. Don't worry about that. And he's <laughs> like, I got that in the bag. And then, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, so we started getting together and he did, he had, you know, probably a half a dozen songs that he, you know, he was already recording on cassettes by himself and, you know, with these other guys. And then as soon as I was in the band, like the floodgates opened and he had like 10 songs within a week that he like wrote, you know, oh. immediately. So right there, we got 16 songs. That's a full set already for a live show. And um, so, yeah, it, it, we met at Columbia College and then we picked up Mike shortly after he and I got together. Um, Mike was advertised as a drummer for hire in a uh, local music and entertainment uh, uh, magazine newspaper uh, in the Chicagoland area called the Illinois Entertainer. Mike was advertising that he was a drummer for hire. And right. uh, so Jim picked him up that way. And we all kind of lived in the same area. And, um, and that's how we started. Did you guys like, made ipo um on your own label right like you did everything the legwork you did everything by yourselves right in jim's house um 
the earlier album before International Pop Overthrow, or not even album, I should say EP, it was a six song EP that we did in Jim's house. Uh, I mean, we recorded it at Short Order Recorder, which is in Zion, Illinois, about an hour north of the Chicago area. And that was owned and operated by the Shoes, the guys from the band's Shoes. Okay. And um, so we recorded there, but then yes, we basically packaged that stuff up that record along with a 45 called the supersonic seven inch, uh, you know, seven inch single, which had Renee remains the same. And then a B side called the girl who never, ever falls in love. And that too, I, I clearly remember that sitting in Jim's bedroom, uh, putting it together. Jim bought a bunch of jackets that had our artwork on it. And then he ordered the vinyl from a, you know, a manufacturer that made all the records and shipped them to us. And we did it like a tiny assembly line. Mike would fold the jacket. I'd glue the jacket. Jim would slide the vinyl in the jacket and put it underneath the phone book to hold it closed till the glue dried. And we must have did, you know, I think we did like a thousand of them, you know, over the course of like a couple of nights at his parents' house. That's when he was living at his parents' house out in uh, Addison, Illinois, which is a Western suburb. So, yeah, we were real young, just getting started, but very ambitious. Jim was like, you know, it's just... It was a workhorse. Everything Jim did and it, everything was about the band. Connections, calling radio stations, college radio stations, uh, booking gigs, booking gigs at clubs here in Chicago for other bands. And then he'd stick us in as their opener. Um, and then when we were ready to start touring, he had all those connections from those bands that came through Chicago. Right. So we'd go to their town and they'd get us a gig playing with them at their in their town. You know, and if it was college towns in the area. Uh, our friends that happened to be going to those universities or colleges would come and see us with all their new friends that they just met at school. And so those venues started selling out every time we'd come to town and it would be like a crazy party in any college town that we went to. And that's how we built a fan base so quickly. Yeah. I mean, like, how did you afford to like, you know, make the record do the jackets and everything like that? Now you can just have a Kickstarter and you have fans, you know, do it in this day and age. So how did you come up with all the, the money for it? It was piecemeal gig money. Like we would do a small gig. Uh, sometimes we would make like T-shirts ourselves and sell T-shirts for like, I don't know, 10 bucks, 15 bucks right. a pop. And so we were making a little bit of profit off of that. We would sell cassettes of our music, make a little profit off that. We would sell uh, the vinyl once we were pressing those ourselves or getting those pressed and distributing them and bringing them along to the gigs. We'd you know bring a box full of vinyl and open up the van when we were loading our gear out after the gig and you know be selling them right out the back of the van. So we'd pocket all that money and use that for recording and for promotion. And then obviously the gig money. If we made 150 bucks, we'd go into the studio and say, all right, we need three hours of time. Here's 150 bucks. And we were efficient enough that we could record a decent sounding single in just a couple hours. I mean, we're just a three piece. Mike's a completely solid drummer. I would kind of be the glue that would help Jim stay focused and keep his song idea concise enough and arranged enough so that we had an intro, a verse, a chorus, second verse, middle eight, bridge, whatever you know, another chorus and an outro, a guitar solo and an outro or whatever, you know, we kind of helped each other. We built off each other and we learned together with each other. So yeah, any money that we made at, at gigs from either selling some merchandise or, you know, like I said, a hundred bucks or whatever, 150 bucks went right back into the, into the band budget. Right. 
that's that's great so then when you want to sign on to mercury for the next one like how much did like the day-to-day operations change for you guys uh well then by the time when we were signed to mercury then all of a sudden we hit the road and mercury put us on the road and uh, we leased the bus or mercury leased the bus for us and um we went out to the west coast we'd head out to the east coast they'd send us down through texas uh, they'd send us up the West Coast and then back across towards the Midwest. And then we'd stay home for a, you know, a couple of nights and then head out east and then head down south into Florida and then back, you know, back down through Louisiana, you know, uh, back into Texas. So we were basically just circling the country. Uh, we noticed pretty quick, even when we were touring before we got signed at, you know, we'd want to be down south in the winter months um, and then back up here in the summer. Right. Or hit the studio. Sometimes we realize it's best to record in January and February or in the really hot months. It's yeah. best to be in a recording studio and not, you know, on the road right. fighting elements, you know. So we learned that pretty quick too. So yeah, it once we got signed, then it became touring and recording for us. It wasn't so, we weren't so much responsible for having to promote ourselves. That opened us up to be able to focus on Jim's songwriting, the recording process. And then promoting by getting out on the road and performing. But you guys were also smart enough not to like spend so much that's going to end up being charged back to you, right? By the record company. Uh, yes, we were very frugal yeah. uh, in many different aspects. Right. One of the ways, like when you mentioned the, the first album that came out on Mercury, which was International Pop Overthrow, we had, and this maybe this is what you're referring to, we had already recorded many of those songs that became that album before we got signed so they were in a sense they were our demos those were the songs that we presented to different record companies saying this is what we sound like this is what we can do these are the types of songs that jim's writing and this is what he sings about and this is how we sound and so those songs in a sense were already in the can and then mercury was like they sound great we want to put them out like they are so they basically gave us advance money okay. which could have been used for our recording budget but they were already done recorded so we you know use that money to sustain ourselves and survive off of that money for the first year or year and a half you know was it basically went to support us and you know start our careers yeah we were very efficient as far as recording and even touring i mean we were really careful about uh not wasting money right you know what i mean putting it in back into the band in important ways that would help further the the future of the band. Oh, that's smart. That, that's really smart. Now, like when you were touring, like were you opening up for any like any big names? Uh yeah. The, the first first couple the first album we were touring with um the Soup Dragons. Okay. And um, you know, we crossed paths with a lot of bands. Jeez, uh, I have uh, I don't have a great memory. Right. Uh, the Lemonheads, and um, you know, I think we crossed paths with Matthew Sweet and uh, Urge Overkill, who was from Chicago, and a band called Green way early on, who was from Chicago. Yeah, they put us out on the road, um, you know, with other bands sometimes from Mercury that were on the same record label, yeah. and um, then sometimes we'd get on these uh, radio station uh, slots where like, you know, a local radio station in Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Dallas, or wherever, you know, Colorado, uh, um, uh, 
San Diego, wherever. Yeah. And there'd be like, you know, a, a festival gig where they'd have a weekend full of bands on a main stage. And so like they'd have 15 bands a day, or 20 bands a day, and everybody got a one hour slot or something. So we did a lot of that too. Uh, you know, social distortion. I remember playing with them and Bands from England. We we did tour a little bit with the Mighty Lemon Drops. They were from okay. England. We shared a, a bus with them. That was kind of tough. Uh, <laughs> a lot of guys on that bus. It, it was stinky. I'll tell you that much. Right. <laughs> but uh, it was a lot of fun too, though. I mean, we had the time of our lives. We were yeah. young men in the prime of our lives, and getting out every night and rocking and rolling and blasting it out and just meeting people and having a good old party time and then you climb on the bus and roll to the next town and wake up and do it all again every night you know it was it was crazy but it was awesome and because we were so young you know we had endurance so we could do it you know for weeks and months on end you know our our tours were just evolving and you know just never ending we were always out on the road but we we didn't mind so much you know we were young yeah and you were on a bill with the replacements, right? On their final show? Yeah, that was a show that was here in Chicago. I think it was a 4th of July show at the Patrillo Band Shell, which is downtown Chicago on the lakefront. And it was broadcast uh, live, simulcast on WXRT here in Chicago. So that was like a huge show, and people still talk about that. Uh, I think NRBQ was also on that same gig, on that same bill. And uh, we really didn't know that it was their last show. I didn't even think they knew it was their last wow. show. And um, yeah, I think after our set, we were just hanging out backstage with our friends and stuff. And uh, guys from the band started kind of showing up backstage, like one by one, we're kind of scratching our heads, going like, what's going on? You could tell there was some tension happening too. So we kind of kept to ourselves and gave them their space. And then we realized that what was happening it had been happening upstairs on stage it was uh wow yeah it was uh, momentous i guess uh unfortunately but you know they're all doing all right yeah i think so <laughs> yeah yeah were they like an influence for you guys too sure oh yeah uh mike and jim especially were big replacements fans yes yeah. definitely yeah so who were your like like influences uh well you know I was a little more traditional in the sense that, you know, I was a Beatles fan, a Beach Boys fan, a uh, Bee Gees and the Everly Brothers and um, Buddy Holly and stuff like that. And then when I got a little bit older, when I was buying records myself, I bought like the Blondie album, a couple of Blondie albums, yeah. the beat or whatever. I bought uh, some Pretender albums. I, I do remember being in the car probably with my mom or maybe my older brother and i heard um the pretender's message of love okay and for some reason that stuck in my head and i sought that out and i think that was on an ep with the cuban slide and uh i don't know maybe kid a couple other songs but that was one of the first albums that i bought or first records that i bought and i was being influenced by what i was hearing on the radio uh, exposed by my older brother uh, he got you know obviously he got a driver's license a few years before me so when he was driving me to school or soccer practice or wherever we had to go he'd always have the radio on and a lot of times I started noticing he was singing along with songs and I'm like oh I wonder how he knows this yeah. how does he know the song so well how does he know the song so well that he knows the lyrics and then I just realized that you know you get exposed to a song or an artist 
more than two or three times, it starts to click and it sticks. And uh, that's how you become influenced. And the same thing happened to me shortly after that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, jump around real quick. You mentioned the pretenders and I really enjoy your, like your solo EP throttles and yeah yeah thank you thank you yeah and one of the songs on there you kind of i don't know subliminally or intentionally you kind of influence space robot you kind of influence by by the retainers in that one mystery achievement achievement. yeah (laughs) yeah i totally did that Yeah, uh, I, I basically took the drum beat and played it myself. Um, and uh, when I first recorded songs for that release, I was I did it myself at home in my basement, basically. And I, yeah, I, I was 
I was a drummer first, so I played the drum beat, and then I layered some bass on, and then some guitar parts, and then the vocals and stuff. And I think that song's even got some uh, keyboard stuff on there too. So, uh, yes, that song was definitely not only influenced by Mystery Achievement. I mean, it, it was like lifted. the The drum beat was definitely like you know, doom, doom, do, 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 do. Yeah, I, I stole it. I think even the tempo might be the same. I, I might have had headphones on listening to Mystery Achievement while I recorded the drum beat. I okay. might have done. I did shit like that. Right. I did stuff like that while I was at home a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and there's I... other songs too. One of the songs was totally lifted from a Cheap Trick song. Okay. And then another song was lifted. Parts of it were lifted from a band called um, Off Broadway. It was a Chicago band. Uh, okay kind of like a power pop band too. Right. So there's three definite songs that were heavily yeah. influenced. Um, and I could like pretty much put my finger on the parts of those songs that were influenced. Heavily. <laughs> right. And you mentioned the, the power pop term and like, you know, you guys are, you know, right up there with the best power pop bands, but were you okay with that term? Was the band okay with that term? Yeah. Yeah. It didn't bother us. I mean, I think we had heard early on that like, you know, Pete Townsend had first used that term and, you know, it's not like Jim was out there writing power pop at the time. It, it wasn't really like, a, uh, like it is now where, you know, there's a whole subsection of music or bands that are power pop bands. Um, but um, um, I think when we were actually, recording and touring we were kind of more referred to as an alternative band they were calling it alternative music right you know? um but even that it's not like jim was trying to write alternative songs jim was trying to write songs that like that he grew up listening to on am radio or right. songs that his parents were listening to while he was in their cars okay. you know what i mean and like he'd hear i don't know uh yummy 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 i've got love in my tummy right. and then something like that would like stick in his head. And then when he picked up a guitar and started writing a song, it came out sounding like that because that's what he liked. Yeah. You know? So, and so it wasn't necessarily power pop, but it didn't bother us that people were calling that. And that kind of seemed to happen a little bit later in our career. And after Jim died, where in order to kind of put us in a subsection, a group of style of bands or music, they, they refer to us as power pop. It, it doesn't bother us, no. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Chicago music scene, you mentioned Chicago bands a lot. And like, how big and influential was that? Because also like Veruca Salt was in there, you can say, and like Liz Fair, another one. Um, it was influential in the sense that it was, there was a lot of camaraderie. Like we were working together to better the scene. And then there were certain bands that we enjoyed playing with. Um, and then... Um, you know, like like I mentioned, uh, a band Green from Chicago early on, we were playing with them quite a bit because our music, our style of music was similar. And then um, we played a, quite a bit with the Smashing Pumpkins and a band called The Insiders. And then uh, Jim became really close friends with Nash Cato from Urge Overkill. So we started playing with them quite a bit. And, um, and then, yeah, of course, we did record a little bit with Liz Fair and we, we were friends with Veruca Salt. So um, the influence kind of happened just because we were in the same circles, okay. you know, we were just uh, working together for like, you know, the common good of the music scene, essentially. Right. Yeah. 
and you, you mentioned recording with, with uh, Liz Fair. Um, you did the cover of the Banana Splits theme song for the uh, yeah. Saturday yeah, morning cartoon. That's um, pretty good, right? That yeah, sounds really good. Yeah, it came I out great. We did yeah. that one on Los Angeles with her. Yeah, that was that was wonderful. Yeah. So, did you pick that song? Did they assign that to you? can't remember i think that there was maybe a few to choose from right and uh, i remember i knew that song from growing up and jim probably did too and i think mike must have you know uh, it was on tv a lot and mm -hmm. when we were kids we watched a lot of tv so we knew that song and i think uh, i can't remember if they assigned that to us or if we chose it they might have assigned us maybe three or four to choose from and okay. that's the one that landed right on. okay but I, I can't say for sure i'm just speculating yeah you know, it, it came out great. It really did. <laughs> now, I heard that Jerry Harrison from, you know, from um, Talking Heads wanted to produce your second album. I remember hearing his name and that he that he was an option. Um, but for our second album, we did go with Jeff Murphy from Shoes again. Right. It was kind of a comfort zone for us to work here in the Midwest, close to home. And we had become comfortable after doing the first album with them. Um, and now that we had an actual budget to use for our second album, we decided to stay with Jeff Murphy. 
Um, it might have been the third album when we were discussing working with him, too. I can't remember for sure. But uh, Jim was such a fan of the band The Sweet. Okay. And, and I remember the band The Knack. Yeah. And, um, and also, like I had mentioned earlier, Blondie. Well, there was a producer that did a lot of work with all three of those bands, and that was Mike Chapman. Mike Chapman, yeah. He did our third album. Right. And so when we got together with him, um, he it was great working with him because he understood right away the type of sound that we should be getting on on tape. And so he was encouraging us to try to do what we're doing in live shows, try to get what we were doing in live shows on tape so that we could release an album that sounded a studio album that sounded like we did live. Live, right. So whose idea was it to cover Kim the Waitress? That, um...
Um, I think Jim and Mike might have shown Mike Chapman a 45 that we had of that song. Jim got it probably because he was booking bands in Chicago. A lot of bands from around the country and the world were sending Jim their demos and their music so that they could get booked here in Chicago. Jim was booking a couple of clubs here. So he heard it and liked it. And I guess at some point when Mike Chapman was in town, when, when they first met, Jim played it for him and Mike's like, you know, this is a really great song. You guys could probably do a great version of this. What have you ever considered recording this? And Jim probably thought at the time, like, well, why would I want to do that? I'm writing my own songs. But for some reason he said, you know what? Blondie recorded uh, the tide is high, which was a cover and had a big hit with it. he said, why don't you give it a try just to see what it sounds like. Let's roll tape. Right. And so, you know, we spent an hour or two figuring out our parts and piecing it together and went into the studio. And it was so successful, the, the recording of it, that I think that became the first single from that album. Yeah. Uh, that would have been the Freak City soundtrack album. Right. Yeah. Another really, really good album. Now, what, like, it didn't really, like, sell as well as the other ones. And it, it was a fantastic album. What, what do you think? It, you know, not as well as the other ones. Um, I think we kind of lost some flavor with the, uh, with the uh, record company. They weren't really as enthusiastic, uh, in the promotion of our stuff after the second album. And there's a few different reasons that we believe that might've happened where we kind of like fell out of favor with them. Right. And I th- also think, frankly, they didn't really know exactly where to put us. Um, when our second record came out, I think that's right around the same time that Nirvana's Nevermind came out. And so the whole yeah. music, you know, the music industry kind of took a turn. Right. And we turned one direction when everybody else kind of turned the other direction. And so that, that you know, that's kind of like where the whole power pop thing came. Because all of a sudden you had all these grunge bands that we sounded nothing like. And so, you know, we were poppy, we were jangly, we were, we were hook laden, we had, you know, uh, harmonies, we had catchy vocal lines and melodies. And I think, I don't think the record company really knew exactly what to do with us at that point. You know, Green Day hadn't really quite happened yet, and Weezer hadn't really quite happened yet. Right. And I think our label just didn't really know what to do with us. You know, they, they, they were holding us in their hands and they had us, you know, they had us in their, uh, in their stable, but they didn't know exactly how to market us. And so I think that's kind of what happened. You know, they, they didn't really know what genre to put us in or what, what market to, to, to push us towards. Yeah. That's, that's unfortunate. Cause 
if you look at you know any not now but record stores they didn't have like a power pop section it was mm-hmm. either rock or pop you know now it's a little more diverse but back yeah. then i mean there, there were the bands time. like us yeah there were bands like us that were out there like i said the Lemonheads were doing pretty right. well um who else? Uh, Red Cross and Teenage Fan Club. And, you know, there were bands that were doing hook-laden, melodic, pop-sounding pop music with jangly guitars or even with powerful, edgy riffs and licks. But um, the scene was just so inundated with all the grunge stuff that uh, I think they just kind of turned their back on us. Yeah. So then... I, I know after Jim passed away, you kind of got to release like a fourth, fourth album. But oh yeah, at, yeah. But after after that, did you and Mike just take time off? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, yeah. um, you know, Jim was the driving force of the band, and so right. like, not only was he the singer and the songwriter and the guitar player, he was the one who was always on. You know promoting not only himself and his songs, but the band. I mean, he was so proud of what we had been accomplishing. Uh, When he passed away, Mike and I kind of were at a loss for exactly what to do and where to go. And so um, that's when I released my solo stuff. It was just songs that I had in the can that I figured I may as well just put them out while I can. And Mike, we each played with different bands. Uh, sometimes we played together with different bands as a, as a rhythm section. Uh, we did some recordings for a couple of diff- different bands and a few live shows and maybe even just a little bit of touring. But for the most part, we just kind of drifted apart for a few years and did our own thing. I, I had started a family by the time when Jim died. I already, I'm sorry. I already had two kids. Okay. So, you know, I had a home. I, I had right. a, a household to run and, uh, and I had to had to earn a, a living so yeah th- i kind of took a step out of the music industry at that time and um and mike too you know he we have families here in chicago you know uh, my parents mike's parents uh brothers and sisters and so we uh we just kind of focused on taking care of ourselves for the most part and um material issue kind of went into a dormancy for a while and then uh, we were offered an opportunity to get together and reunite with another singer to do some tribute type shows. And that's what we did. Right. And that's how a material reuse started, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a guy named Phil Angotti who sings um, the majority of Jim's parts and plays guitar. And he does a really great job. Uh, we have a show this weekend here in Chicago. And um, we've got another guitar player who's also playing with us to help fill out the sound. So we are a four piece. His name is Lou Hollis and he's got real tasty licks and he really helps fill out the sound. And I mean, we just did a rehearsal last night. Okay. Yeah, we're older. Right. We've heard quite a bit. Our tempos are a lot slower than what they were when we used to play them. I mean, like now they're actually closer to what the recordings sound like. Okay. Because when we were younger, it sounded one way, but then when we were on stage playing in front of a crowd, really different, yeah. we were bombastic. We were like insane. Um, but now uh, we do the songs justice. You know, we're not out there, you know, shaking our asses and, you know, <laughs> bashing people in the head like we used to. Yeah. Uh, 
not bashing people in the head like violently. I know obviously. what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're we're older. We're older guys. You know, we're yeah. we're gentlemen. We're presenting these songs uh, beautifully. Is what we're doing. I mean, even even the more aggressive songs, in a sense, we're, we're kind of playing them better now than we were then. I mean, that's not actually the case. I know what you mean. Though. Yeah, we were we were really good when we were young. Right. Um, now you know <laughs> we're a little more careful now. You know, and uh, but uh, we do justice to the legacy of Jim's songs, to the songbooks, you know, to to the records and for the fans so that they have an opportunity to hear these songs performed live, you know, and I think they appreciate that, you know. That's great. Now, do you remember where you were the first time you heard one of the, the band songs on the radio? Not exactly, but I do know... I, I know I was driving. I, I do remember like, you know, being in in my car and like probably hearing on WXRT and I think it might have been Renee Remains the same. And it's just like, holy crap, man, we sound good. This sounds like the Beatles. This, you know, the way that song end, ends with the harmonies, if you, if anybody seeks that out and wants to hear that, when that song ended with the vocal tag right at the end, I think the word is same, Renee remains the same. And we hit that last note, it was just brilliant. And to hear that coming out of my, you know, my car stereo speakers, and I might've been at a, at a stoplight, just like spinning my head around, like looking to see, like trying to, oh my God, I'm on the radio. Oh my God, this is right. awesome. Oh my God, this is my band. Oh my God, you know, turn on WXRT 93.1. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was driving when I, you know, one of the first times that I heard us played on the radio. Yeah. Right. Do you do you ever count the amount of times that Jim sang Diane? In the- uh, no, I know uh, some radio stations used to have like contests about that. Okay. Like the first caller that calls in with the right answer gets right. free tickets to tonight's show in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. And wherever we happen to be, you know, Syracuse. Yeah. Like <laughs> and, counting uh, the beans. <laughs> Yeah, something like that, you know. And I, maybe it was like seventy-eight times, or right? Yeah, forty-six times or something.
people would like listen to the song and be counting on their fingers or whatever. Right, see yeah. How it. yeah I, I don't know the answer, but yeah. it, 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 I've heard contests about that. Okay, yeah. That was before the internet where you can just search up the lyrics and just count how many times, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, but Ted, thank you so much for your time today. I sure. really appreciate it. Good luck, you. you know, with material reissue and the, the documentary. Thank you very much. And a special thanks to Ted for joining me today. For more information about the documentary, go to factory25.com. For more information on the band, go to X, formerly Twitter, at Material Reissue. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can follow me on X at FirstNall19 or like the page for Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Spotify, Amazon Music, Podbean. Basically, wherever you can find a podcast, a new episode comes in every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.